this week on the Roommates Podcast. It's the one thing you can do in the absence of any money is make a good decision. Yeah. You don't actually need money to make a good decision, right? You need you need a good decision in order to make money. Yeah. Uh, so which comes first? This isn't a chicken or an egg problem for me. This is a chicken, <laughs> right? The chicken, the chicken comes first. If you're a moral human being, you're more likely to make good decisions that lead to wealth and upward mobility. And if you make bad decisions, no matter how much money we, we throw at you, that's not going to transform you into a better person. Yeah. I, I've yet to hear of a single person who is a piece of garbage, a really bad person where we gave them money and suddenly they were a great guy. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Somebody who, people who are bad, who get lots of money, tend to do more bad with the money they yeah. get. Yeah. People who are very good with no money tend yeah. to do more good with the more money that they get. Yo, 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 what is up, world? This is your boy, Hafiz, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Roommates Podcast, a worldwide conversation with individuals who are united on the values of becoming, holistic health, kindness, togetherness, and a thirst for knowledge, also known as the best hour of your week where you are entertained like a stand-up, educated like a TED Talk, and enlightened like a sermon. And guys, remember the podcast is available on YouTube. It comes out every Monday, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 8 a.m. Central Standard Time. That's Mondays on YouTube. We have about 35 episodes available there, and we have our full catalog available on audio. That is on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, we are available. And those episodes come out also on Monday at 12 a.m. Central Standard Time, 1 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I know you guys are asking, where is Christopher Jordan Below? So guys, I'm so sorry. Christopher Below once again, was unable to make it. He got caught up. He gives you his condolences, and he's so sorry that he's not able to make it. But trust me, I have upgraded him. I got a better, more efficient model who I believe is going to be really, really enjoyable. But before we get started, I want to make a quick point. Remember, guys, in The Roommates, we are a community that has two my, in my opinion, my two most important values is a thirst for knowledge and also kindness. The big idea for thirst of knowledge that we said, you know, we, we, we need to have an open mind, but also a discerning heart. So be open your mind, listen to people who are different from you, but have a discerning heart. It doesn't mean you have to believe everything that they say. But also, guys, in regards to kindness, guys, I really believe that it's so toxic in society when we have these characters, assassinations, we call people names that we disagree with. I think that's extremely unhealthy and it's definitely, we have zero tolerance for that in the community. The number one way of progressing in the society, the number one way to become more tolerant is to listen to views that we may or may not agree with. Just sitting in an echo chamber and just listening to everybody who share the same views as us, there's no way for us to progress. So in the roommates community, we have people from all different ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, also from all types of social and political backgrounds. And that's where we welcome them. So my thing is, guys, just please, as always, be respectful in the comments. Be respectful to one another. When we bring somebody on the show, shut up, listen. <laughs> Don't judge somebody based upon some crazy headliner. Don't judge somebody based upon some um, clickbait video, which was made to put them in a negative light. So please be respectful for everybody we bring on the show. And thank you guys so much for being a part. And without further ado, we went ahead and traveled all the way to Los Angeles, California to bring in the one, the only Mr. Roboto himself, <laughs> Ben Shapiro. Hey, dude. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Man, so good to finally be able to meet you in person, man. Well, thank you. You so, too. I know, I know, I know. So my question is, growing up, were you a fan of superheroes? Uh, yeah, actually. Okay, so if you could have been any superhero, who would you have been? Well, I mean, if you can be any of them, you have to be Superman because he has the best all-around <laughs> core 
group of, of attributes, but yeah. uh, the one who I always had great sympathy for was Batman because he didn't have any special skills. His only special skills were extraordinary wealth and brains. So. <laughs> and what about villain? Um, so the, the one who I always found the, the most interesting uh, was probably Magneto just because I'm from a Jewish background. Yeah, Magneto's yeah. entire backstory is about surviving the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, and so this is why I like X-Men First Class. That film I thought was quite good. Okay. Um, so I was always interested. I thought Magneto was was really interesting. I'm trying to think. Uh, well, Lex Luthor yeah. I always thought was, was great. In yeah. fact, uh, we had a comic book artist who was in here who actually did some work on some DC comics. And uh, he asked which page from uh, from, I think it was, uh, injustice. Okay, uh, I wanted, and I said, "Give me one for, with Lex Luthor." Because <laughs> Lex is kind of an interesting character. That's awesome. So, if I was to guess you, I'm gonna go me. Then I'm gonna say, if I was to guess you, for me, the number one superhero, obviously Superman. I love Superman and um, DC, and then Marvel. I'm a Spider-Man guy. All right, yeah. <laughs> um, and then villain is. Um, did, did you watch Watchmen? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Adrian from Watchmen, that's kind of like the super villain. I'm like, yo, okay. I just like, just like, I just love the way he thinks. I just like, if I was to do something, it would be for the betterment of humanity. Well, right, and that, that's those kind of stance. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that, that's what makes the honestly. This is my thing about comic books: is that it's not actually the heroes that make comic books great. What yeah. actually makes comic books great are the villains. Yeah, and and so the question is. Is their motivation interesting? Because the truth is that most evil that we do just as human beings is done from motivations that are generally good. Very yeah. few people go out there in the morning to be sadists and masochists. Exactly. And that's why even the supervillains that we're talking about, yeah. all the ones that we tend to like are people who think in their head that they're, they're doing something right. Exactly. And we all know they're doing something wrong, but yeah. that, that's much more human and much more real. Yeah. And so if I was to guess you, <laughs> I would have guessed the Hulk <laughs> because of all the Ben Shapiro destroys videos. <laughs> and also because, I mean, underneath this shirt lies the body of a Greek god. I mean, you wouldn't like to see me when I'm angry. <laughs> and then for supervillain, I would have guessed Brainiac <laughs> for the DC Universe. I could just right. imagine you traveling the universe just collecting all kinds of information and just storing it. Well, have you ever read uh, Superman Red Sun? Uh, so Superman well, Red Sun is it, it's oh, a great comic where Brainiac's entire thing is that he's taking civilizations and he's putting them in bottles. But the but the but and he's one of the villains in Superman Red Sun. The premise of I'm Superman sorry. Red Sun is that Superman actually lands in the Soviet Union. That when he when when he he arrives from Krypton, he lands in the Soviet Union. Oh wow! And so his powers end up being used on behalf of the Soviet Union. And the whole comic is about differences between Soviet values and American wow, values. Really cool and that's interesting. That's awesome. Uh, where, where can I get that at? I mean, that, that one's available on, okay. on Amazon. It's, it's pretty widely available. I thought it was like available. special edition. No, 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 it's good. <laughs> okay, so for, I know who you are. So for people who don't know who you are, can you give us a bit of elevator pitch synopsis, who you are, what you do and all that jazz? Sure. So I, I host the, the biggest conservative podcast in the United States, The Ben Shapiro Show. We have about a million people who watch or download the show every single day. Uh, I am also the editor-in-chief of The Daily Wire, which is a major conservative news and commentary website. We get about 100, 140 million page views a month. Uh, and then I also you know, write, I, I do speeches on college campuses. If you've read about me in the headlines, it's probably me being banned from a campus or requiring <laughs> yeah. police officers yeah. to let me onto campus at Berkeley. Uh, and uh, I write books, I do some TV, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of political pundit the, yeah. in, the, in the space. Okay, so one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of people, is, in my opinion, are just very politically ignorant. You know, they just really have no basic foundation of American politics. You know, whatever poli side they took in college or if they even took it in high school, they probably were sleeping, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so in your opinion, how would you explain conservative ideology into liberal ideology in the most objective way possible? So I think that the conservative ideology is based on the idea that we are— that. Individual human beings are given certain rights 
by God, and that government was instituted to protect those rights. Social contract theory. Right. Yep. Uh, so it's a very Lockean perspective on what government was constituted to do, rooted in Judeo-Christian ethics and, and the idea that God made us in his image, and therefore we have certain rights. Uh, I would say that, that the leftist political theory is based on the idea that rights do not spring from God and don't inure to the individual. Rights are given to you by government. So in the absence of a government protecting your rights, you don't have any rights. Mm. And therefore, the government can override individual rights on behalf of the collective good. So if the government wants to make sure that everybody has health care, then they can override your rights to make sure that happens. If they want to make sure that they want to build a highway, they can override your rights to make sure that happens. Whereas the, the Lockean view would basically suggest that unless I consent— then you don't get to override my rights. It's the difference between the American Revolutionary Credo and the French Revolutionary Credo. Okay. Uh, the French Revolutionary Credo, the, the French Declarations of the Right of Man, basically says all rights spring from the government and the collective trumps the individual. Mm. The American Revolution essentially suggests the opposites, that the, 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 the rights pre-exist government. Government was created to make sure that those rights are not violated and that individual rights actually trump collective needs in the vast majority of cases, except in certain emergency situations. Okay. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And then, so you have a book coming out in March, uh, The Right Side of History. Mm -hmm. Can you basically explain, I was, you know, I I look forward to reading, I think it's going to be a great read, but can you basically explain your premise of your upcoming book? Sure. So the basic idea is that Western civilization is built on two fundamental bases. One is Jerusalem and the other is Athens. Jerusalem, meaning Judeo-Christian values that we get from Judaism and Christianity in the Bible, uh, and Athens meaning Greek reason, our application of reason to try and discern the purposes of the universe, to try and discern science and, and all the rest. And the fundamental premise of the book is that one of the reasons we're so angry at each other is because we've been undermining the thing that we all used to share. We all used to share this stuff. Like we would have disagreements, but they were circumscribed by a basic agreement that, for example, human beings were made in the image of God, that individuals have rights, that the, that history does progress, that we have a moral responsibility, that we don't get to decide ourselves, it's actually outside of us, and that we can apply our reason to come up with objective ways to do things and also objective ways of viewing the universe. And we've spent a lot of time tearing down all of these things. We've torn down religion by suggesting that it is superstition. And then we've said, okay, well, if there's no religion, there's no God, then there is no outside morality. We can make up our own morality. And by making up our own morality, we can conquer the world. That ends with some pretty bad results. And when that fails, then we tend to fall back on hedonism as a value uh, or on collectivism as a value. And so we're really angry at each other because we don't agree with each other on these fundamental principles that undergirded all of Western civilization. Now, this isn't to say that the history of Western civilization is inherently wonderful, that we all got along or anything, because obviously that isn't true. I mean, yeah. we had whites enslaving black folks in the United States. Yeah. We had people murdering Jews on a wide scale across human history. Yeah. All of this is true. But the basic fundamental ideas of the West, the ones that built the West, the ones that that built human rights and built science and built all the great things we experience, those have roots that are deeper than the last couple of hundred years. They go back several thousand years. And it's the tension between religion and God on the one hand and science and reason on the other that gives you a civilization worth fighting for. That's awesome. I, I think that's super exciting. I, I look forward to just really diving a little bit more deeper into that. But I have a quick question about some of um, your ideas about government. I just want some clarification sure. on it. So, um, one of the things that I've heard you share many times is that, you know, government sucks at <laughs> just about everything. Mm -hmm. And you're a big fan of limited governments and things along those lines. So my question is that if we're going to go ahead and remove a lot of the government programs 
do you like your premise is that we we should allow charities, religious institutions, organizations to go ahead and take care of that. But in a society in which, to your point, has the moral fabric and the social fabric has begun to become corroded, so what? So like that kind of provides a bit of attention in which there's not enough people to have these social institutions. But then, if we want to remove it from the government, then therefore. Who's going to take care of the least right. of these? So I, I think that that's exactly right, which is why I spend an enormous amount of time trying to talk about social fabric. I think in the absence of social fabric, the government is going to feel compelled to take over. People are going to be compelled to give the government enormous power. Yeah. Rebuilding the social fabric is the precondition to reducing government size because otherwise, as you say, there aren't enough people to fill that gap just on a practical level. Human beings do feel obligations to each other. We do feel like we want to be part of communities. And if those communities don't exist, then we look for other ways to, to fill that gap. And government is one of those ways. So you're exactly right. I mean, charity begins at home, but so does reducing government. That begins yeah. with the belief that, like, I don't feel bad about the idea that there are impoverished people in my community in the sense that I'm giving money to them, mm. right? I don't feel that it's the government's obligation because I myself am personally giving money to them. Yeah. My community gives an enormous amount of money to people in, in dire need. And so when people say, well, what would the, where's the government come in? I say, well, not in our community, really, because we sort of take care of each other. So mm -hmm. it's a voluntaristic basis. In the absence of the Judeo-Christian value system, a lot of that falls away. I mean, in the, the idea of a perfectly libertarian universe <laughs> where people don't have any obligations to each other on any level, moral or otherwise, the kind of Ayn Rand universe, yeah. <laughs> that assumes that there's no disability, it assumes there are no children, it assumes there are that no one has the inability to take care of themselves, obviously. Yeah, and it also it also uh, goes against this idea of the depravity of humanity that, you know, in the Judeo-Christian values because of the origins of sin that we by nature, you know, have this sinful nature. So I guess one of the another thing that I was thinking about was that in your ideal form of government, like you said, in a limited government, which commodities and responsibilities would you want on in the hands of the government and which commodities and responsibilities would you want in the private sector? So the, the government is responsible for protecting life, liberty, and property. Exactly. That's it. That is the only thing that the government is there to do. So that means providing for the common defense, having a military, things I can't do myself with just you. We have to protect the entire territory. So that means that the government has to be responsible for the military. I think mm -hmm. having the government responsible for the police force makes, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I think that having the government be responsible for maybe road building, maybe. But I mean, even there, I think that it should be reduced to the local level as much as, as humanly possible. I think that education should be reduced to the private level as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I think that local communities are best at deciding how they want to raise their kids and how they want to educate local their kids. Local governments or local communities? Local communities. Okay, like, I, I don't think, like, I, I don't see why the local government should compel me to do something I don't want with my child. I don't I don't know why folks would would feel the the moral sense that they can tell me how to raise my kid better than I can raise my own kid unless I'm doing something that objectively damages the kid, like I'm beating the kid or something. Yeah. Uh, so, but that, again, life, liberty, and property, the government's there to protect it. The government is not there to provide what the left would call positive rights. They're not there to provide health care. They're not there to provide education. They're not there to provide all the wonderful things we have, but have generally been capable of being provided by the private sector in a more efficient and, and more meritorious way. Yeah. So... I guess one of the one of the ideas is that so like for example like welfare social security you're a big fan of like let's let's remove that from privatizing government. those as much Pri as possible yes. privatizing those as much as possible and so I guess the question that I'm I'm kind of wrestling with because to an extent I do definitely agree with the personal responsibility of the individual you know in Christian in, in, in the Christian worldview in the Book of James said true religion is taking care of the widows and the orphans so right. I definitely believe in that but I guess it's this sense of with your point about the, the social fabric being corroded, that how can we tangibly move people off the, you know, the teat of the government right. to go ahead and the responsibility of the community? 
One of the big problems is that if people are dependent on the government, then they don't feel the necessity to be dependent on the community. Yeah. So the growth of government actually crowds out charity. When you raise taxes, charitable giving goes down. So it works both ways. It's not just that you have to build up the social fabric so you can cut government. You have to cut government to provide room and impetus for the social fabric to actually grow. So the chain of, uh, the chain of need should work like this. You, need, you have a problem. You need help. It should first go family, then it should go extended family, then it should go local community, meaning non-governmental local community, then local government, then state government, then federal government. Unfortunately, we've completely reversed this. Now it's federal government first, then state government, then local government, then maybe you go to your community, then maybe you go to your family. And that removes the incentive for people who know you to help you. Mm -hmm. And it also removes your incentive to give back because when a faceless, nameless government is handing you cash, you're you don't feel that you've taken anything. Mm. You feel like it was owed to you. I mean, even the very term entitlements is wrong. Yeah. You're not entitled to somebody else's money. Mm -hmm. right? When I take a loan from my parents, that's not an entitlement. That's my parents loaning me money. Yeah. When, when I take a loan from somebody in my community, when they, when they give me charity, I'm not entitled to their charity. And if I feel like I am entitled, that's, that's a sinful feeling mm. that, you, that you're entitled to somebody else's money. I mean, you're not supposed to be jealous of anybody else's possessions, obviously. So yeah. you know, we, we should feel a little bit guilty about taking other people's possessions. That's what keeps us honest and, and you know, gives us the, the feeling that we ought to give back. Yeah. And so I guess for certain communities due to, you know, historic conditions and that's all across all ethnicities and different yep. backgrounds, you know, uh, kind of like Jordan Peterson said, like the kind of the, the cards are kind of stacked against them, you know, the, you know, the, the, the system kind of failed them in, in and of itself. And so, and they're kind of unfortunately at this moment attached to the government, like a, a sense right. of life support for a lot of these communities. So are you a proponent that if we remove these, these government interventions that all like these communities will begin to take care of themselves, build up one another and support one another because like they don't have that safety net? Or do you believe that by removing some of these life supports, there'll be some re residual side effects in which that there may be, you know, increased poverty, increased hardship and increased difficulty for those in those communities? So I think that, that both will be true. There yeah. will be unintended side effects because every Every policy has unintended side effects. Yeah. I also do think that when you change the incentive structure, people act differently. Yeah. So the fact is that to take the black community as an example, the black middle class was growing faster in the 1950s than it did in the 1960s after yeah. the implementation of welfare and and the social and the social reform programs proposed by by Lyndon Johnson. The same thing is true with single motherhood. As as welfare grew, single motherhood skyrocketed in the single in, in the black community. Single motherhood in the black community in 1960 was 20%. Today it's 70%. That's because the government stepped in and played the role of father, at least financially speaking. Yeah. And that's a disaster area. Forcing people to take responsibility with actual incentive structure changes is necessary. Yeah. And, and listen, is that going to have some cost? Yeah, I mean, people won't be able to get a check the first week. But the question is going to be, how do you change the systems? And people are very adaptable. And pretending people are not adaptable, I think, is is one of the great flaws in, in left-wing thinking, is that, that people act the same no matter what their social situation, no matter what the governmental situation. I don't think that's right. I think people are incentivized to work or not work by whether they get a check to work or not work. They're incentivized to have babies out of wedlock or not have babies out of wedlock based on economic and rational decision-making and based on a social standard that says whether it's good or bad to do this sort of thing. Yeah. So we, we actually need to change social standards. We need to change governmental incentives. And one of the things I think would happen is for the folks who get hurt by, for example, uh, a real tightening of, of welfare, I think that there would be, again, an impetus by religious organizations and charitable organizations to go in and help. This would now become a first priority, a first order issue. You know, we're going to go into these communities and we're going to provide a hand up. And that's how you get people integrated back into the sort of communities socially that they need to be integrated into 
for, for their own for their own good. Now, again, I'm not talking about compelling them to. I'm just offering them the possibility of, of integrating into a religious community. Yeah. No, and and I think in regards to your initial point about some of the issues, um, you know, in regards to the black community with the fatherlessness and just different <laughs> things in regards to welfare, we can talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, like any situation— It's I think true it's of a, the Appalachian community, yeah. too. I mean, there, there's, there's poverties— there, there, there are certain levels of poverty that exist in a wide variety of communities. Of for, for but, but the poverty in a community generally exists for not not lack of wealth exists for disparate reasons. Yeah, continuation of cultures of poverty exists for the same reason, and that's bad decision making. Yeah. So historic lack of wealth in the black community is due to discrimination and historic racism. Yeah. Single motherhood rate today is based on a lot of bad immoral decision making that is happening on an individual level. Yeah. And that's true in the white community, in the black community, all across America, where single motherhood rates have skyrocketed since the sixties. Yeah, and the biggest thing is that, and we'll go into a little bit deeper, that I definitely do believe in the personal responsibility argument in the community, which is kind of goes into the next point when I want to talk to you a little bit about education, but in regards to just uh, um, economic displacement, I think one of the, I was looking at it, the, the, I believe it was the U.S. Census Bureau, which, which was describing that sometimes in regards to situations like in, for example, what's going on in rural America, how when you have a lot of these men who are economically displaced, and then you're going to also have an increase in fatherlessness. So it seems like it's a multivariable equation, which is contributing to poverty. And it's, and like you said, the individual, individual responsibility is key, but it's also a variety of different variables that create an issue. Right. And, but I think that in the end, the question is how you solve these problems. And mm -hmm. as an individual living in a free country, the way you solve these problems is by not making crappy decisions. Yeah. So when we talk about, like Tucker Carlson has talked about the idea that increased rural poverty has led to women not marrying men and having children out of wedlock. I think that's getting the correlation backwards. What's mm -hmm. happened is that people are having babies out of wedlock and this makes them impoverished. Okay. I mean, you, you are poor. I mean, the, the single greatest indicator of intergenerational poverty is having babies out of wedlock. Yeah. That's a choice that is not made on an economic basis. No woman says, I want to be richer, throw the guy out of the house. Yeah. That's not how this works. Yeah. Uh, it's just that there are perverse incentive structures with regard to welfare that say that you're no worse off economically if the guy takes off. So he can take off. But as a culture, there's an actual social move that has been made against two-parent families and to suggest that there is no moral dearth to, to leaving a child without a father that is a real problem for, for all sorts of communities. The, the Brookings Institute I mean, is a study I'm fond of quoting. I quote it all the time. Yeah. To, 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 to be non-permanently poor in the United States, all you have to do is not have a baby out of wedlock, graduate high school, get a job. Those are things that pretty much everyone can do. There's a small percentage of the population incapable of doing those things, but that's a very small percentage. And the one that people seem most incapable of doing is not having babies out of wedlock. Yeah. Like a lot of people are graduating high school and they're having babies out of wedlock. And the question is why? Yeah. Right? That's the easiest one. Graduating high school actually requires you to do homework. Yeah. Not having mm -hmm. a baby out of wedlock requires you to stop doing that thing that you're doing. Right? Yeah, 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 <laughs> like yeah. no, there are very few people who are, who are accidentally having babies out of wedlock without any level of responsibility whatsoever, you know, yeah. a rape case or something. Yeah, so let's go ahead and touch into that Brookings Institute because that's the one of the things that you quoted a lot. And I'm a big fan of that study that I think, you know, um, the Brookings Institute provides a really tangible solution of escaping poverty. I think the biggest thing for me is that people who are disenfranchised and people who have, you know, unfortunate living situations, how to provide tangible means of them going out, out of it. And the first thing, obviously, not having kids outside of wedlock, I believe, like you said, for 99% of the population, that is your personal responsibility as a decision that you as individual must be able to make 
make. And if you are going to make the decision that there's going to be a kind of, like you said, these, these consequences that you're going to have to deal with. So I definitely believe in a personal responsibility argument in regards to, you know, the no kids out of wedlock. In regards to the second point, uh, getting a full-time job, I definitely do believe that that is your personal responsibility. I, I will have a little bit of pushback because I definitely do agree to an extent that in certain communities, it's more difficult to get a first a full-time job. But one of the arguments that you made is it goes back to the adventurous nature of humanity that if there is no, like if the, you know, if the animals leave the area, then you have to go ahead and migrate. If the jobs are no longer in your local community, one of your arguments is that you have to go ahead and transition to not only another new city, a new state, and maybe even a new country. And obviously there's different levels and difficulties when it comes to that. But for the most part, I think most people should be able to make that decision. But I guess my question to you is that in regards to education is one of, is a problem that I have a bit of contention. Like I said, um, and, and I'm confused about it because I think you and I both agree that it's extremely important for education in order to succeed and be successful in America. Ed- education is key. I know, I've heard you talk about how your father instilled that in you, and I think mm-hmm. that's an amazing yep. thing. And my father also instilled that in me. I think it's an amazing thing. But one thing that you've also shared is that the American education system sucks. It's failing. So, for example, for so for students who are in failing districts, I believe one of the studies show that there's some districts in, in the country that have like graduate high school graduation rates low as 50%. So if you're a student in a failing district and you have and it's going to uh, like lean towards you know you're not graduating high school because of the difficulties in regards to the community or the school system how much of that is your personal responsibility when you're a young student so i think that there it tends to fall more on parents so yeah. what studies tend to show is that the the school quality itself can contribute to which college you go to or don't go to but if the school itself is not very good, that's not going to lead to a high dropout rate. What's going to lead to a high dropout rate is parents in the home not telling their kids to go to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that communities that highly value education tend to have schools that, that mirror that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same thing is true of families. You'll do anything for your kid's education. Well, then maybe that means you move to a new school district. Or maybe that means that you send your kid to parochial school and you work an extra job on the side. So again, I think that there are ways that we can improve our education system. I think school vouchers would be a great way of improving the education system. Uh, I think that privatizing more uh, charter schools would be a, a great way of improving the education system, busting the teachers' unions down to size because those are not operating in the interest of students. They're operating in the interest of teachers, obviously. That's why they're called teachers' unions. Uh, and when you have teachers' unions bargaining with the state for fewer hours worked and higher pay uh, or for smaller class size, you know, it's, it, you make the argument that students need that, but make the argument on behalf of students. That should be a student's lobbying group, lobbying mm-hmm. Congress or, or legislature. It shouldn't be the teachers yeah. lobbying on behalf of that. Uh, and public sector unions are, are a serious problem. But in the end, you know, there have been a lot of very impoverished communities in the United States where education is is highly pushed. It's it's just, it's stressed. Yeah. And people have been able to overcome initial poverty to reach great heights because of that. And, yeah. you know, if we're going to talk about minority communities, obviously the one that comes up most in this context is the Asian American community. Mm-hmm. It's the single highest earning community by, by household numbers, yeah. by household income. Uh, and a lot of these people are coming over utterly impoverished mm-hmm. from places like China or Vietnam or Korea. And if education is valued, they're able to succeed. Yeah. So there are things we can do to the education system, but I think that the number one thing we can do is as parents, yeah. we can we can encourage our kids to stay in school and ensure that they don't drop out. Yeah. 
so that's again people don't drop out because they are like oh school's bad it's boring I'm leaving they, yeah. they drop out because they don't think that school is important or because they've been told that school is is ineffective yeah or because it's just not that that highly valued yeah so I definitely agree with you that the personal responsibility of the parents to install that into the, the children because like I said like my father did it to me your father did it to you so I definitely believe in the personal responsibility for the parents to make sure the students are successful I guess my question is that in regards to if you're a student like and your parent doesn't instill that in you and let's say for example I think one study once quoted that third grade reading levels is correlated to high school graduation rates. So if you're a young student, you're in third grade. I'm sorry, my alarm. <laughs> if you're, a th- you know, if you're a third grade student and your parents are not teaching you to read and not doing these things and not helping you, you know, be able to be equipped for middle school and high school and potentially high school graduation, then there's for like, it's kind of like you're suffering because of the, the inadequacies of your right. parents. So then what do we do as a society to be able to curtail that? So changing the school doesn't actually help that. That's not a matter of if the teacher were better, then, the, then yeah. that would fix the problem for the kid, right? Yeah. That is an actual parental problem. Yeah. And that raises questions of truancy. So earlier I said that, you know, the state should not be deciding for parents how the kids are educated. That's assuming that parents want to educate the kids. Mm-hmm. I think that you can have truancy requirements against parents. The parents need to send their kids to school. They need to demonstrate that their kids are actually getting educated in the same way that you would send child protective services for parents who are not feeding their kids. So who would take care of that responsibility? So that that is a state responsibility. Okay, so you give that to the state. Yeah, because okay. then you have externalities. That's okay. a crime against another person. Okay. That's, that's the parents actually committing a crime against the, the children for, okay. for lack of a better categorization. Yeah. So uh, You need to protect the kid's life, liberty, and property as well. And the kid course. can't protect themselves. Of course. So in regards to that point, so what about the parents who, like I said, they're not neglecting their children. Let's say, for example, they're working two jobs, they're busy, not, they're not able to invest as much as, you know, a different parent into their kids. So one of the things that you're a proponent of is just charter schools. You're a big fan of charter schools. You, you, I think you talked about school vouchers. You're a fan yep. of it. I worked at public, private, and I worked at a charter school. Mm-hmm. I, was at work, I worked at one of the largest charter schools in the country. And one of the biggest things that I've seen is that in regards to charter schools, like there is tangible results that regardless of the parental background, these charter schools have these effective tangible results. And there's so many different studies that can be able to show it. But then charter schools have these extremely long waiting lists. The school I was at had a 20,000 student waiting list, you know? So then in regards to like at this current moment, if you're a parent and you're perplexed, you know, and there's students who want to learn, but they're in these terrible learning environments, like what do we do as a society at this current moment to help these students? Well, we definitely have to provide more school choice. I mean, the fact is we're, we're putting an enormous amount of taxpayer dollars into the public schools to pay off those public sector unions that I'm talking about, and parents should be able to direct their student and their money to where they want to send their student and their money. Yeah. The idea that you're locked into the, the, the school district where you live is absurd. Mm-hmm. It's absurd. Why, why should you have to? I mean, we have cars. We've had cars in this country for quite a long time. The notion that you live in a downtrodden area and maybe you have the money, but you maybe you have the money to send your kid not to a private school, but to a charter school for a discount. Mm-hmm. But you can't send your kid to this charter school that's across a county line. You have to instead send your kids to the public school because there's no charter school available. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a restriction on choice. Yeah. That's a restriction on choice. And that should obviously be fought as hard as possible. More parental choice is, is better. Yeah. So for people who of all ethnic background, because I think one of the biggest conversations going on right now is that before it was all about the inner city communities. Now it's the rural communities. Like both of these schools, no matter what ethnic background it is, that people who are in these impoverished and difficult school systems, they're, they're suffering these consequences. So do you think that we should have, you know, definitely sympathy and compassion for these individuals who are in these least, you know, ideal situations? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. and, and the question is, after the empathy and, and, and compassion, what do we do next? Exactly. And, and so there, I, I would suggest that Religious community plays an enormous role. I mean, I send my kids to a religious day school. Most of the parents there are on some sort of financial aid. Uh, that's that's fairly common. And I give money to the school specifically so other students can be on financial aid. Yeah. This is fairly common in, in virtually every religious community. It's why, yeah. Again, 
I believe in Alexis de Tocqueville's description of the United States is great simply because we have all of these social institutions that are outside of government. Yeah. If, if the only two choices we have are atomistic individualism and government involvement, there will be a lot of government involvement because mm -hmm. you do need collections of people to be able to do these sorts of things. But this is why we have to rebuild our social institutions. The halfway step there is something like a school voucher where the government's already taking your money. Now the government gives it back to you and says you can direct it any way that you choose. Or the government says, you want to start a charter school that's not subject to the public sector unions in your area? Go ahead and do it because that's a better use of government money. Would the ideal solution, if I were creating the system from scratch, be either charter schools or public vouchers or, or any of that? Now, the ideal situation would be that people would, would move toward membership in particular communities where they can join schools that they want to join yeah. on, a, on a private basis. But if but that's not the system that we're working from right now. So yeah. now the question is, what do you do with the people who are already in this situation? Exactly. And there you have to have programs of transition. There you have to deal with the realities on the ground. Yeah. So that was that was one of the things that I I like. I said I was noticing, like you said. I think in regards to like the Brooklyn study, I think it's just so many tangible things individuals can do. I guess my cause like I said when I, I was also a teacher at a public school system, and I just saw so many students, and they wanted to care, they wanted to, but it was like the school system. Like I was the only teacher, and I felt really bad leaving the school because I actually had to do other things. But I felt really bad because the school like these students didn't have these different opportunities. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, the the way that the public the public schools are run in terms of public sector unions are terrible. Seniority yeah. should not be any recommendation of pay level. Uh, the idea that you should be you know, unfireable because yeah. you've been working at a school for long enough is asinine. Yeah. We wouldn't work any industry in the United States this way. We would have incentive structures. But you saw that when Michelle Rhee tried to put a lot of these things in place in Washington, D.C., she tried to actually create incentive structures where for teachers to teach in more impoverished schools, like then that she was rejected. The, the D.C. city council tried to take her down. Like in Los Angeles, you get paid more to teach in Beverly Hills than you do to teach in East L.A. or in South L.A. That's absurd. You should actually be paid more to teach in South L.A. or I East agree. L.A. It's I a harder job, 100%. right? I mean, it's, it's easy to teach in Beverly Hills. Yeah. It's a bunch of parents who are very wealthy, by and large, and also happen to spend an awful lot of time in their kids' education, effort mm -hmm. on those, ki those kids' education. If we're going to be talking about redistribution of, of educational resources— we should be incentivizing people to go into the harder jobs, which is to go into areas where you don't necessarily have two parents in the home, where yeah. parents do have to work two jobs, mm -hmm. where the parents may not have a job, and the kid's going home to eat junk food sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, that, that going into, and, and that's not just true of East L.A. and South L.A., it's true of rural America. I mean, yeah. it's, this is not a racial thing. This, of course. Is a, this is an income educational level thing and a human behavior thing. Yeah. So, like I said— Obviously, we want to build up the social fabric. We want to build a moral fabric of society. We want to move people to these healthy religious organizations, whatever nonprofit organizations that be able to teach these values. But would you say in regards to funding of school systems, do you think it should be um, a bit of like standard funding so all schools can be equally as funded and equally opportunities? Or do you think it should just simply be local tax dollars in this current moment of society? Well, I mean, I think that it should be the, how, how the tax system gets done is of less interest to me than where the tax dollars are directed. Okay. So I think that it should be local taxation because local communities should be able to decide how much money they want to spend on this stuff. Of course. Um, but be uh, just because localism is 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 less violent of consent than mm -hmm. than broad based election systems. Um, but how the money is distributed, the money should follow the kid. It shouldn't follow the teacher of the school. Okay. So so the parents should be able to pick which school they want their kid to go to with the money that they are spending on the kid, just like you would in, in the private sector. More choice is better. Yeah. And then, so, so I guess the question is, if all the schools, so you, which, if schools 
have equal payment, then therefore you have the freedom to select whichever school you want to put your kid in because everyone has the same amount of money. But if certain schools are more expensive than others, and obviously the people with more tax dollars and more money would send their kids to the better schools and people who have least will send their kids to the worst schools. How do we um, like solve that situation? Well, I mean, the, the, that situation already exists. People yeah, exactly. who, are, who are more impoverished yeah, are going yeah. to public school. People who are richer are going to private school. Yeah. And, and, and the answer to that, honestly, is that most private schools do have financial aid programs. Okay. I mean, most private schools do have programs that are that are allowing people who can't actually afford the the top line tuition to to pay for you know, to to go to school for less money. There are people who are going for completely free to a lot of parochial schools. That seems to me like not a terrible model. Um, yeah. And and as and as far as you know, public education itself, I think what the one thing that we have to recognize is that dumping money into the public schools has not helped one iota without either better administration or allowing parents to pick which public school they want to send their kid to, which is the vouchers argument. Yeah. Right, LAUSD is spending like $9,000 a year per student in the LAUSD system. I mean, that's probably about what I'm spending for my kids to go to their school right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit more, not yeah. much more. Yeah. And my kids aren't in LAUSD and LAUSD is a trash heap. I mean, yeah. LAUSD just an, aw- I went there. It's an awful school district. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's the second largest school district in the country. Yeah. Uh, they do an incredibly poor job with, with outcomes. Uh, you know, again, there there are a bunch of problems that we have to separate out. One is how we how we determine how each school is funded, and as I say, that shouldn't be done on the basis of area; it should be done on the basis of the quality of the school, which will be determined by the market, yeah. and the market in this case is the parents. Yeah. So, let's say that there is a school that's located not in there. There are two schools. One is located in South LA or East LA, and one of them is located in Beverly Wood. Yeah. And this, the parents in Beverly Wood, the and and the parents in South LA or East LA can take the money that they're getting back as a school voucher and they can pay it into a system that is partially being subsidized by the government to go to a school in Beverly Hills. Why shouldn't they be able to do that? They obviously should be able to do that. And if there's no great schools in South LA, okay, well, then there's no great schools in South LA. Everybody has to take their kid and ride them 35 minutes to the nearest good school. Yeah, That's just the way that that works. I mean, the what I see from the left is, is something different, which is the attempt to lock kids into the school district where they live. And they will fight you mm-hmm. to get you not to do that, right? They, they will they will try and tell you that we should end charter schools, that we shouldn't provide school vouchers because they're worried more about the inequality of the educational experience than they are about the quality of the educational experience. I'm more worried about the quality than the inequality, meaning that the question is how we find a way for kids to get into better schools. The question is not how we make sure that kids have less choices, that the better kids and the better parents are in worse schools. Like, I just... That, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think the, the first and foremost, the first responsibility should be for each parent, each individual parent. That unfortunately, you know, like I said, any system, there's going to be good schools, there's going to be bad schools. Unfortunately, we can't escape that. We can't create just a utopian society where every school is perfect. So unfortunately, like just the worst part about society and have empathy for these people drastically. Cause like I said, I taught at these schools that some parents are going to put their kids in least ideal situations, which is why I definitely believe that each parent should take the individual responsibility to go ahead and to provide for the students. I mean, this is, their- this is what, frankly, I mean, this is yeah. why you see that the countries like South Korea or, or Finland, where there is heavy cultural focus on education. Yeah. The outcomes are very good across the board, Yeah, but that's because there's a homogenous a homogenous commitment to yeah. education. So if I could wave a magic wand, the thing I would be least concerned about is the amount of money that we're spending on schools or how that money is distributed. The thing I would spend the magic wand, the thing I would use the magic wand for is convincing parents across the spectrum that the number one job you have for your child is to make sure that your kid 
is educated, does their homework, cares about education, and wants to better themselves. I mean, that's yeah. as a parent, that's the thing I spend every waking minute thinking about, basically, and I think every good parent does. Of course, and then also I would just add to that, I just also believe that it's just our job as, you know, citizens in this community, especially those who have these these these, uh, these moral values to be able to go back and give and provide opportunities for these, 100%. These, to, to a lot of these failing school systems. And some of the people, like I said, like graduating college and being a teacher at these school systems and be able to provide different opportunities. So another thing that I was... Um, I would say one thing, and I think it's it's that we should charity public expenditures on on this sort of stuff. It should be done on a need basis. What I mean by that is that people need to express their need before we can determine whether that need is something we can fulfill. Okay. So if you're a parent yeah. and you say, "Listen, I want my kid to go to a better school. I can't afford that better school," we can find a way to raise the money for that. Yeah. If you if you're a parent and you're saying. I don't really spend much time on education with my kid. I don't care that much about it. I'm going to blame the school for my own lack at home. No amount of money that we pour into that is going to solve is going to solve yeah. that situation. That that's a problem with you. That's not a problem with the with the school. Exactly. I like it, but like I said, build up the parents, but then also build up the schools. Another thing that I was thinking about in regards to one of the one of the things that you were talking about, I think I saw it during your Tucker interview, is that one of the your 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 idea is that one of the biggest issues of the social unrest and the issues in society goes back to, like I said, the lack of spiritual, the lack of moral values, and lack of moral purpose. But I guess my question is, how much economic hardship and economic difficulties also contribute to that factor? So I, I think that the correlation is not strong. Okay. Meaning that that you've seen impoverished communities in the United States that are extremely religious, have good social values, mm-hmm. uh, want to educate their kids. Yeah. And you've seen impoverished communities in the United States that don't. Mm-hmm. The one thing that is true is that all rich communities want to, you know, uh, educate their kids. Do being rich in the United States as a general rule. If we're not talking about inherited wealth, yeah. if we're talking about somebody who became wealthy during yeah. their life. A series of good decisions were generally made in order for people to become wealthy. That doesn't mean that everybody who is poor is poor because they made a bunch of bad decisions. There yeah. are a bunch of reasons that people are poor. Yeah. But if you move from poverty to wealth, it's because a bunch of pretty good decisions were made, yeah. which suggests that we ought to be focused on the good decisions. As far as you know, whether poverty causes people to make bad, bad decisions, I, I, I'm not a strong believer that poverty causes people to make bad moral decisions. I think that every human being is driven toward making bad moral decisions. I think the worst moral decisions that we tend to make are not ones that are driven by poverty, but by willingness to shirk moral responsibility. So how many people do you know who are impoverished who live good, solid lives? I know a lot of them, people yeah. who are lower middle class, poor, who live good, solid lives. Yeah, That is what happened? I mean, they were poor. Why didn't they go out and rob a, a liquor store? Why yeah. didn't they, why didn't they go out and kill someone or knock somebody up? I mean, but, but could, but would you argue that obviously, like you said, like, you know, my parents are from Nigeria and, and all around, you know, Africa, Nigeria, different countries, like just because of you're in a difficult economic situation, a lot of times, like, you know, people who are in poverty environments are, are the most joyful, are the most peaceful. I once heard mother Teresa said that the, um, the physical poverty in the East is only rivaled by the emotional and spiritual poverty in the West. So therefore that these people in these communities do have indeed joy, but for certain people who are kind of on defense when they don't have, you know, unfortunately it leads them to bad decisions. And one of the one of the things I was thinking about was that in regards to divorces, I think one of the sociologists stated that one of the reasons for divorces, there's many reasons, but one of the leading factors goes to financial instability, right? So how how do you feel like that correlates to if there's um, financial instability leads to divorces and then leads so to growth I, I, in the family? You know, I'd be interested to read that study because yeah. my feeling about financial stability in marriage is less that financial instability leads to divorce than that financial instability leads people to be angry at each other and the anger leads people to exactly. divorce. Exactly. So, uh, so, yeah, that, so, yeah. the, so the question is, where do you break that chain? Do you break the chain at financial instability or do you break the chain at stop yelling at each other about financial instability? Yeah. And to me, 
it's the second place. Okay. Meaning that what good people don't do if they're married is where if we have financial instability, either I go gamble away the paycheck or <laughs> we are we understand that we have a bad financial situation now I nag you and I yell at you and mm-hmm. and all that. Like most most decisions that we make on a moral basis should not be driven by the level of our paycheck. Now is it more is it more stressful to be poor than it is to be rich? Of course. I've, mm-hmm. I've lived a variety of income levels during my <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, never, thank God, in, yeah. in real poverty, but yeah. certainly middle class. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say when I was growing up, you know, somewhere between middle class and lower middle class, yeah. like my early youth, I mean, we lived in a two-bedroom house uh, in, in Burbank. I shared a room with four with with three sisters. There were four oh. of us in one bedroom. We had six <laughs> people in the that. house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we moved. And then we moved. Yeah. You know, my parents were upwardly mobile, so we moved. Yeah. Um, but it's but the the point being that my household was good because you can still build a moral lifestyle around not income, but, but morality itself. The, the truth is that the vast majority of human history, everyone's been poor. Yeah. Right. The vast majority of human today, the, the vast majority of people on earth are, are poor. They're not, they're not impoverished to the extent of being in danger of starvation, thanks to capitalism. Yeah. But the vast majority of people on earth are not living American lifestyles. Yeah. And we still require them not to kill each other or rape each other, or, you know, scre- divorce each other, scream at each other. Mm-hmm. The, the correlation between acting badly and and poverty, maybe maybe poverty exacerbates moral problems, yeah. but poverty is not an excuse for moral problems, in other words. So that's so if you were going to solve the moral problems, especially in the richest country in the history of humanity, yeah. I have serious doubts that this is going to be solved by a second microwave. Like I, just, I just don't think that, <laughs> yeah. that if we if we throw money into certain communities that suddenly the marriage rate rises. Yeah. Uh, and... It, I, I think it's the opposite. I think the marriage rates rise and then and then that generates wealth. That yeah. generates good decision-making. Again, the question is, it's almost a supply-side, demand-side question in the same way as economics. There's a moral supply-side and a moral demand-side economics that people are suggesting. I think Tucker is suggesting a moral demand-side economics whereby we give people a bunch of money and then they become more moral and then they get <laughs> married and then they do good things because yeah. they don't have as much stress on them financially. Yeah. And I'm a moral supply-sider, which means that the morality, the the moral, the moral decisions can be made. It's the one thing you can do in the absence of any money is make a good decision. Yeah. You don't actually need money to make a good decision, right? You need you need a good decision in order to make money. Yeah. Uh, so which comes first? This isn't a chicken or an egg problem for me. This is a chicken, <laughs> right? The chicken the chicken comes first. If you're a moral human being, you're more likely to make good decisions that lead to wealth and upward mobility. And if you make bad decisions, no matter how much money we, we throw at you, that's not going to transform you into a better person. Yeah. I, I've yet to hear of a single person who is a piece of garbage, a really bad person where we gave them money and suddenly they were a great guy. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Somebody who, people who are bad, who get lots of money, tend to do more bad with the money they yeah. get. Yeah. People who are very good with no money tend yeah. to do more good with the more money that of they course. get. So that means that the question is, how do we become virtuous people, mm-hmm. whether or not we have money, yeah. not change the financial, and I'm talking, of course, in a free country. Yeah. Because we, we live in a free country. If we're yeah. talking about a tyranny, yeah. then it's easy to say that the pressure of a, of a tyranny that can skew the moral equation. Yeah. So for example, you live in the USSR and they say the only way to advance is for you to rat on your parents. Yeah. Okay, that changes the moral equation because yeah. now you have a, a force that is actively changing the moral equation. But in a free country where nobody is forcing you to do anything, mm-hmm. morality has to come first, not money. Yeah, and I definitely agree I definitely agree with that. And I think one of the biggest things that we're trying to start with the roommates community is like I said, going back to those values of kindness, togetherness, the thirst for knowledge, holistic health and becoming because we definitely want to create that community. We want to be able to uplift the moral f- um, fabric. We know help society be able to 
create tangible solutions because regardless if you disagree with Ben or you disagree with anything about our political policies, at the end of the day, we as human beings have a responsibility for one another. But more than that, we have a responsibility to ourselves. And as much as we can, we want to be able to control our own lives and not have to depend on government. I know that there's historic and historical reasons and things that have contributed to the failures of certain communities, but it's our responsibility moving forward to do as best as we can to help our lives. And then like Ben was saying, that as we begin to, you know, get closer to God, you know, establish our values, becoming mostly spiritually healthy, then we can go back and give to other people. So I, like I said, I know some people do disagree with the political, you know, ideology, but in regards to really creating a better America and loving one another, it starts with becoming a healthier person yourself. And as you become a healthier person yourself, going out and helping your fellow brother. And it's funny for, for people like me, I'm political pundits. I talk about politics all day. Yeah. I think that politics is maybe the worst way of trying to change America in the sense that it allows us to escape the culpability of making better personal decisions that help out people. You feel better about voting for tax rates of a certain level than now you don't have to go give charity because you voted for something Mm -hmm. or you voted a certain way on environmental policy. Now you don't have to recycle. This this idea that that, that voting and politics are a substitute for good personal behavior Mm -hmm. and then extending that good personal behavior to others uh, it, it's it's a really dangerous thing. It's a really dangerous thing. We're trying to we're trying to fill a personal individual need for virtue with virtue signaling or an attempt to grab hold of the collective and use the power of the collective in order to compel people to do what we want them to do. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, I I definitely agree. I definitely I definitely see that. And you know, we're running out of time. I feel like Cinderella at the ball. <laughs> and uh, you know, I want to be respectful of you know, obviously of the Sabbath. Um, in closing, is there anything that you would like to communicate to the to the people, audience, people who've listened to this message, a general message you want to let them know? I think the politics is secondary. Yeah, I mean, again, for for somebody who talks about politics a lot, that's mainly because most of my most of my work is talking about why politics is less important than how we act in our daily lives. And we need to appreciate the freedom that we have and the civilization that that freedom was built upon. And then we need to act like we are in control of our own lives. We mm-hmm. have to, to stop. I mean, there's less reason to, to be complaining in the United States of America for everyone mm-hmm. than there has been for anyone else in the history of humanity. Right? Yeah. We live in the freest, richest country in the history of the world. That doesn't mean that we aren't going to encounter obstacles. It doesn't mean that, that people aren't going to encounter racism, homophobia, Terrible things. We're all on the same side when it comes to getting rid of actual obstacles to achievement. But we all have to acknowledge that the biggest obstacle that any of us will ever face in our life is us. Mm-hmm. The, biggest th- the, the, the biggest mistakes that, that affect your life are very unlikely to be collective mistakes. They're very likely to be individual mistakes. It's, it's, and that's why individual decision-making, asking the most of yourself and asking whether a look inward might be more effective than a look outward is likely to make as I grow older, I think it makes me a better person, but I think it, it's also likely to make your community better because now you can extend that same ethic of, of self-cleansing to, to other people as opposed to worrying too much about, okay, well, if we change this system here and this system here, then that'll make everything better. Pretty, pretty unlikely. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that, Ben. And I know, unfortunately, you know, we couldn't get into you know, the full length of the conversation, but we were able to get a lot of ideas forth. And I really do appreciate you continue to have these conversations, continue to share your ideas. I think the biggest thing that I'm trying to teach the people in the community is to be able to have these civil conversations. The problem with American- well, I really appreciate it. No, yeah, it's great. The, the problem with American society is that the conversations are so toxic. If there's somebody that you disagree with ideologically or, you know, 
world and politically like it's just all of a sudden we demonize a character like you said we make these character assassinations that just all these types of unhealthy slanders that we do and I'm all about no let's sit down let's have conversation let's work together to be able to find solutions you can disagree with Ben you can disagree with me you can disagree with it but it doesn't mean that you have to be disrespectful you know and not, not only that but let's go ahead and all work together obviously there's going to be issues obviously there's going to be problems but as civil as possible let's work together let's have these conversations and let's be respectful so I thank you so much well, thanks for having me on I appreciate it dude so Good yeah to see guys you. make sure you go ahead and you reach out to Ben where can they reach out to you at Ben well I mean they can they can email me at bshapiro at dailywire.com uh, you can check out my my rather uh, spicy Twitter page <laughs> at, at, at Ben Shapiro if that's something you're interested yeah. in uh, and all my writing appears at, at Daily Wire. You can check out my podcast on uh, iTunes or SoundCloud or any other place you get podcasts. Yeah, guys. So remember, guys, don't forget, within our community, one of the biggest values that we have is reaching out to people who come on the show. Let them know, thank you for coming on the show. As always, guys, let's keep everything positive, cordial, respectful. You're free to disagree with anybody. Like I said, you can have a you know open mind. Listen to Sunny Heart. You can disagree, but always be respectful and be kind. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, we thanks really a lot. appreciate you guys. Guys, make sure you comment, 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 share. My name is Todd Feast, and I'm joined by Ben Shapiro. And we got our roommates, guys. Thank you so much for your time. You have a great day, and guys. God bless.